Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Gant Laborde. Hello, humans. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, Jason Mays. Jason, do you want to introduce yourself? Let people know why you're famous? <laughs> sure, thank you very much. So yes, I'm Jason. I am the developer advocate for TensorFlow.js over at Google, which basically means if you are using machine learning in JavaScript pretty much anywhere out in the wild, there's a good chance that you'll see my face pop up at some point. <laughs> oh, good deal. Are you a software engineer trying to learn machine learning? then you should check out the course from Educative.io called Machine Learning for Software Engineers. It has 87 lessons, 8 quizzes, 115 challenges, 163 playgrounds, and 2 code snippets. In other words, it's not just a set of videos that tell you how to do the thing. It actually walks you through all of the processes for machine learning. It gives you quizzes. It makes you do challenges. It's very hands-on. It's done with experts from companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. And it is a terrific course that I've been learning to do machine learning. So go check it out at devchat.tv slash learnml. That's devchat.tv slash learnml. And that'll take you to the right place so you can sign up for the course. Yes. More Jason face. That's that's exactly what we were looking for. <laughs> awesome. So I think we've talked our way around TensorFlow and TensorFlow.js and a lot of the other technologies that are out there kind of at a, a high level. Do you want to just kind of give us the high level rundown of what TensorFlow.js is and then we can kind sure. of run from there? Yeah. So essentially TensorFlow.js is an open source machine learning library that you can use that allows you to do machine learning in JavaScript. Now, back in the old days when TensorFlow first came out, it was just available in Python back in, I think it was like early 2016 around this kind of time frame. And then about two years later, TensorFlow.js was born because, well, why not do machine learning in the browser? And <laughs> there's certain kind of advantages as well by doing it on the client side that you can get, such as privacy, which is just impossible to do if you're sending stuff to the server side. So one of our advantages, if you are running in the web browser, at least, is that when you're doing the inference, which is when the machine learning program does the classification, essentially, on, on like the raw imagery from your webcam, that webcam data doesn't have to be sent to any third party server. So that's pretty cool. And especially in the world that we live in these days, the privacy is top of mind, or maybe you're working with like healthcare data or whatever it might be, you can now do that without sending that around all over the place, which is kind of cool. And then there's other bits and pieces you can get from doing it on the client side too, like saving costs and lower latencies, and of course, embracing the reach and scale of the web as well. Yeah, I just love how it's, I hear all the time, blah, 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 in JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, I think it does lend it a bit of ubiquity as well. I mean, I would put forward that machine learning and I'm trying to remember blockchain those have kind of pushed Python forward, but JavaScript already has a large oh, yeah. user base just by virtue of the fact that it's sort of de facto used on the web. And so, yeah, right. it's exciting yeah. to see that. I'm somewhat of a JavaScript enthusiast. And so for me, uh, you can do blah, blah, blah in JS gets me excited. So <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I think ML in JS is still relatively new, even though we've been around for two years. I think the wider community is still awakening to the fact that it's possible and what this machine learning thing actually is and what it can do and why you might want to do this in your existing you know, workflows and so on and so forth. So I'm excited to see how people embrace it going forwards. I, you know, I think what's really great about it is demoability of if you can put anything on a website, it's just so beautifully, yeah. Yeah. you know, tangible. Exactly. And I, 
I'd have to say that since you've kind of like come into frame of beating the drum and helping people like actually build projects with TensorFlow.js, I've seen more and more cool web demos than ever, which is really awesome because, you know, it's a lot more fun than reading a paper. <laughs> right. And I, I, I've been amazed at the quality of stuff coming from the community. When I started that made with TFJ hashtag back in the day, and we had a trickle of people starting to use it. And there's some cool things, but mostly they were just using the existing model as is and then being proud that they got it working. <laughs> and now they're taking it to whole new levels by combining it with existing web technologies, you know, things like WebGL and FreeJS or maybe WebXR and all these other kind of emerging web technologies. And it's very powerful uh, when you combine all these together, you can really innovate and be very creative. You know, maybe yeah. take a minute for our listeners and, and let's, let's let them know. So the hashtag is made with tfjs that's and, correct yeah. and you will guaranteed see jason there for that and <laughs> a lot of really cool things <laughs> yeah getting that hashtag started was it surprisingly easy hard or yeah i mean uh, just... i just started using it and encouraged others to join in and i, nice. I kind of i guess the the, the benefit to the end user initially mm. was, okay, if you make something cool and you use it, that allows me to find it. And if I can find mm. it, I might beat you on a blog post or a show and tell or whatever it might be, right? So I think that got the initial like kind of community spurred and interested in, in taking part. And then it kind of organically grew from, from there. You know, that leads directly into, uh, you mentioned show and tell, and you've had two of those at this, uh, as of right now, right? So far, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, so I guess walk everybody through why they should go to your next show and tell, what, what they can expect if they're interested in TensorFlow.js. So basically, if you have zero experience in machine learning, or maybe you're even new to JavaScript, our show and tell sessions are a great, a great way to get inspired as to what is possible with both of these technologies combined. <laughs> Essentially, I invite roughly eight presenters, and they all have 10 minutes each to talk about the latest and greatest thing they've created using TensorFlow.js. And we have a little bit of a to and fro, and they get to demo their work. And it's just generally super exciting. And I kind of cherry pick these eight presenters each time. And they're basically the most interesting things I've seen since the last show and tell. And that leads to some really awesome creations and a lot of cool discussions. And at the end, I often have a private hangout as well, where I invite all the live listeners to come join a private hangout, where if they have any burning questions they want to ask directly, that's not recorded on YouTube Live forever, <laughs> then that's completely <laughs> possible. And we can have a bit of one-on-one -on -one time, well, one-to-many time, I guess, with any presenters who are left and myself the end. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So no machine learning can be scary. <laughs> I've been down that path. Yeah. <laughs> when you're first starting, it's very, well, what is this? And how do I get started? And why yeah. do I want to do this stuff in any anything? And yeah, it, it's, a, it's a rabbit hole of things to go down once you start unraveling it. But to get started, you can actually get started in just two minutes with no background in programming. We've actually got a website that one of the teams at Google created called Teachable Machine. And it's just a graphical user interface, just a regular website which allows you to use your webcam as an input device. And you can point it at objects in your room, hit record a few times, and that is its training data. And then you can learn to recognize that object in under two minutes of your time with no programming and no machine and experience. And let me tell you, once you've done that first, you feel like you've got superpowers. You feel, oh my gosh, I can recognize this. And sure, it, it might not be the perfect machine learning model. Like if you, if I were to recognize a blue deck of cards and then I show it a red deck, it might not realize it's the same thing. 
and that would require more trading data. But mm -hmm. even so, just recognizing that blue deck of cards it opens up so many potential things you could make. So maybe someone was talking to me about recognizing their garage door if it was open or closed or not, and you could use Teachable Machine to do that, and then they oh, could nice. connect that to their like Raspberry Pi and then control the garage door if it was left open after a certain time automatically and all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. <laughs> so yeah, hardware awesome. integration, everything is possible. <laughs> you, you know, that's that's a good point. I think that for web developers to be excited about something, it has to enter this tinkering domain. And yeah. machine learning has always been a bit outside that. And it's gradually moved more and more into this very visual, very tinkering domain, very dopamine rich uh, <laughs> you know, testing lab environment. Yeah. I, yeah so, I think there's a whole kind of scale of stuff there now. There's stuff for people who are experts, they can go really nitty gritty down into mathematics of it all and really nerd out there's also now the more visual editors and visual based machine learning which helps for beginners get get started essentially and then they can slowly un unravel the rabbit hole <laughs> as, as they get uh, more more specialist in a certain area or something they need to get extra performance from or whatever it might be that we need to do to go further down that rabbit hole awesome. yeah the other thing that i see though is that i mean i've been a web developer for a long time you know, plus I'm the guy that my mom calls whenever she has a tech problem, which means I'm an expert. Oh, yeah, I, know, I know that. I know that. So, <laughs> and, and it still feels kind of sci-fi to me, right? And so when I get something going like that, yeah, it's not just the adventure of exploration, but it's also just the, hey, I can do this and I can do this in a language I know because I haven't really yeah. spent a lot of time in Python. And so mm -hmm. but the whole project just seems really exciting to me that way. Totally. And I think it's interesting you said the word sci-fi there. A lot of the demos I create of the recent past, especially, are often inspired by sci-fi movies and things that I've seen. So <laughs> I don't know if you are aware, but I, I recently created a, like an invisibility cloak in JavaScript that can remove my body from the a live webcam video feed. So then I could potentially join a, a Zoom or a, a Google Hangout and any background people could be removed or something like this. So you know, all this is now possible with just a bit of creativity and I can have Harry Potter-like effects <laughs> in, in the real world almost. So uh, I, that gets me excited and often I'm inspired by the sci-fi stuff that I see too. Yeah, you know, as Jason works through the Deathly Hallows, I, I am very excited to, <laughs> to watch all the exciting kind of aspects. That one that you're talking about, the Harry Potter Invisibility Cloak, is a beautiful demo. And I'll just kind of say it for our listeners. You know, Jason turns on his webcam and and then starts walking around the room and things start moving <laughs> and it, without, you know, a person in sight. And it's just digitally removing him from frame, which is really, really cool. Do you want to deep dive? That's a great one, because I think mm -hmm. the animated GIF is fantastic. And yes, I will say animated GIF for life. Yeah. You can't stop me. So <laughs> but the animated GIF that you have for when you tweeted that originally was yeah. just a great aspect. So I guess from conception to application, can you kind of walk us through uh, yeah. as a deep dive into how that started and then getting all the way into the TensorFlow JS? Sure. So the actual idea came to me when I was dreaming one night. I have one of these random dreams that I <laughs> <Yes>. often have. <laughs> I love this. I love it already. <laughs> Every once in a while, I have like a coding dream. I'm literally coding in my dream. It's really bizarre, but I actually essentially solved how I would remove an object from a background in a very trivial way. So all I'm doing is if you know where 
certain pixels in the image are of a certain things, in this case, a human body, I can then know what is a human body and what is not. Now, as the human body starts moving around the scene, I can then tag all the pixels as to when they were a background image or not. And over time, I can eventually build up an image of what the background is. So then I have mm -hmm. a complete image that is just the background. Then when the person comes back into frame, if they are in frame, I then pause those pixels on the last known image that had a background pixel there. <laughs> so that the rest of the pixels can still update. So that's how you see my bed moving in that GIF. I'm still updating the imagery, but not where the person is. So you see when I walk in front of a laptop, the laptop screen actually pauses technically because that's the last known background image I had for those pixels. Mm -hmm. And when I move out of the, sorry, when I move away from the laptop, you end up starting to move again. And this is the key thing, right? If you didn't do that, if it was just take a screenshot of my background and then just mm -hmm. replace the video with that, that technically would work. But then the background would never update. And that kind of removes <laughs> the magic from the whole experience. And that's just an image at that point. Um, whereas yeah. this, the beauty of why this went viral, I believe, is because you see me walking on the bed and the bed deforming. That's where the magic comes in here. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is like every bank heist movie needs to be using this technology instead of looping <laughs> old video, right? <laughs> they always catch it. They're always like, that's not the time. This is this video is by a floating head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> yeah, that would be the perfect setup there. <laughs> That's awesome because, you know, for a demo and experience, sort of like identifying that the person's there and the person, I guess, is like you're using something like PoseNet to identify so, yeah, so yourself. I'm using body pics, actually, so I can get the, uh -huh. the body segmentation data back at a pixel level detail rather perfect. than just the skeleton of the human, which yeah. wouldn't be enough data for me to know where all of that begins and ends, essentially. Yeah. And one of the kind of issues I had to work through when I did this. And I actually made this in just one day, which goes to show how easy it is to use some of this machine learning stuff. Um, so BodyPix, for those of you who don't know, is one of the machine learning models that our team has produced and open sourced. So it's, it's wrapped in a super easy to use JavaScript class. So even if you have no machine learning experience, you can just send this class an image and it will send you a JSON object back with all the pixel data saying if it's got a body or not, essentially. <laughs> it's just a binary mask of sorts. And with that, you can do it as you wish. Now, most people, when they see something like body pics, they're gonna be like, oh, well, I can see where the body is. I'm gonna highlight it. I'm gonna show how many people there are on a scene. And of course, because I know my mind just works differently sometimes, I was like, well, if I've got the body data, maybe I can remove it, which is not this go-to kind of thought path typically. But I like to kind of break things and tinker with things to their limits. So that's the path I took in this case. <laughs> I'm excited to see what other things can be made with body pics. And we've seen people from the community even, they've managed to use body pics to scan a magazine. So one guy in Paris and France, he can scan a magazine and then he uses 3JS and WebXR to then bring that body from the magazine into his living room so you can then walk up to it and it's all <laughs> life-size and stuff. And of course, as any good JavaScript developer would do, I, I saw this and I was like, well, what if I add WebXR to that? So not WebXR, um, WebRTC to that as well. And thus teleportation was born. And my latest demo <laughs> is allows me to teleport my body anywhere in the world. So you can actually see mm -hmm. me in your living room talking to you like I am right now, but visually actually see me standing in front of you and I can teleport <laughs> myself anywhere in the world. And of course, that was inspired by you know, Star Trek and all this kind of stuff as a yeah. reason as to why I wanted to pull this off. But also when I saw WebXR was possible from this other guy's demo, I was like, well, 
if I can make this real time, <laughs> then we can nice. do teleportation. So I got excited by that. Yeah. Help me, Obi-Wan. Awesome. You're our only hope. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to teleport some Thai food back here. <laughs> yeah, anyway. it's a good time to teleport. So I think that's the only travel that we're getting <laughs> at the current time while we're recording this. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering, since we're talking about some of the capabilities here, let's say that I decide that I want to build something like this. Yeah. How do I get started with TensorFlow.js? Yeah. And then how do I start pulling in other people's models and building my own models? Sure. That's a great question. So I would start the opposite to how I would learn to program, where I typically go from the low-level stuff and work my way up. In machine learning land, I'd go from the high-level stuff and work my way down. <laughs> so first of all, I would just go try something like Teachable Machine. If you just Google that, find the web page, and that allows you to do one of three things. You can recognize an object using your webcam, you can recognize a sound using the microphone, or you can recognize a pose using our PoseNet machine learning model. And these three things are basically accessed by this super easy to use interface that is all completely in the web browser. And you just got to click some buttons and it just magically works. So once you've tried that and you realize that, okay, I can actually make a machine learning model. Your next step is to then take that machine learning model because you can actually click on export at the top right of this web page and it'll give you this JSON file that you can download and host on your own web server somewhere. And then you can use that in whatever capacity you wish. So if you can recognize a certain object, then start to think, okay, how can I be creative with that? What can I use that for? So in the garage door example I was talking about earlier, you know, if I can recognize my garage door is open or closed, maybe now I can hook up to a Raspberry Pi and control the garage door when I've left it open after a certain time. Or if it starts raining outside with a weather API, I can automatically, automatically close it as well. So I start just to get creative with these high-level pre-made building blocks for are using your custom data, essentially, just to get a feel for what is possible and also what mm -hmm. the limitations are. You'll, you'll notice when you use Teachable Machine that because it's limited in the fact that you can only have like, I know, like 100 megabytes of RAM usage in the Chrome web browser per tab, if you have too many images, there is an upper limit to how many images you can train with. And that's when you would want to move to our Node.js infrastructure to train larger data sets, for example, which will in result, so in, in turn result in a better more robust machine learning model, which you can then use, of course, in the client side, but the training might need to be done in Node.js for that kind of stuff. And that's how you start unraveling the layers. Is like, okay, well now, yeah, I want higher accuracy and, and better robustness. I need to now learn how to do this in, in Node.js, for example. And then you start unraveling more of the onion <laughs> and go deeper down the rabbit hole. But first of all, definitely try Teachable Machine. Second, try to use our pre-made models that are nice, easy to use JavaScript classes. And that gives you a real good flavor for different types of ML that are possible. We've got things that allow you to do object detection, pose estimation, body segmentation. We've got face mesh that allows you to see 400 168 landmarks of your face all in real time. And with that, you can do a whole bunch of interesting things. That I think Modiface, which is part of the L'Oreal group, used it to do AR makeup try-on. And now they can allow you to try on lipsticks and things without even leaving the web browser. And it looks really realistic. We use like VGS shaders and all this kind of stuff combined with face mesh to then put lipstick on people so they can see what it looks like before they buy it. So you can get really creative just with these pre-made models. In fact, all of the demos that we've spoken about today are using our pre-made TensorFlow.js models that are these easy JavaScript classes. It's actually 
very rare that you need to roll your own from scratch. <laughs> Only very few to do that, actually. And you can often find a pre-made solution that you can leverage and repurpose for your creative idea. Then finally, for those who want to go the whole way, there's a great book called Deep Learning with JavaScript that is designed for people who are completely new at machine learning, but familiar with JavaScript to take their first steps and also go from zero to hero in a, I think, 10 chapter book. <laughs> it's quite thick, but it literally walks you through beginning to the end. And from that, you can definitely get a very robust knowledge of machine learning as well. Very nice. Yeah, I think, no. I think you're muted, Grant. You know, that's a great set of information for people getting started. You went through a lot of different terminology and, and aspects. Do you find that when you're talking to web developers about these models and sort of just bringing up tensors for the first time, do you have a sort of a spiel or how you plan on communicating what those are? Do people generally follow along or do you have like, hey, let me just kind of throw this at you and then here you are? Because yeah. I've seen, you know, when people come from web to machine learning, there's a lot of <laughs> terminology. Yeah. And bugs. even more yeah. Speaking of which, you said tensors and I'm not. 100% clear on See, what that is. There, we immediately started doing that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe Gantz actually the guy to explain tensors. I remember trying out his course that he made oh, yeah. uh, not too long ago when I first joined the team. And like, he's got a great course going into what on earth is a tensor. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you essentially realize it's just, you know, a multidimensional array with some extra functionality layered on top of it. That's all it really is. But understanding how they work and how to manipulate them is extremely important. And uh, you know, Gantz course is, is great. And kind of get familiar with Tensorland, essentially, before you start using them for real things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I had no idea if that was, you know, actually, out of the students that have spoken to me, quite a few of them have been like, why do I need to know this about it? And then later on, they come back and they're like, that's why yeah. I needed to know so much about this. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, when you're just that's starting exactly, out, you, know, yeah. you might hear the word, it's good to be familiar with what it is and what's kind of going on yeah. behind the scenes. I think it's always nice to have that kind of fundamentals knowledge just to see what's going on behind the scenes. But you probably won't use it until you start getting your hands a lot more dirtier, so to speak, and uh, going down, making your own models and all that kind of stuff or tweaking existing ones. And as we said before, like 95% of people might not need to do that for a long time because there's so much out there you can just reuse and repurpose. Just like in JavaScript, you might you know, pick an, a an API or a, a library or whatever it is and just use it out of the box. You're not going to reinvent that every time, right? So same thing happens in machine learning too. Yeah, let's, let's go from the other side just for a minute here. Let's say yeah. somebody listening to this is a machine learning expert, but yeah. they are looking to offload the server costs to the client. Sure. And yeah. so that's why they're interested in TensorFlow.js. What process would you recommend for them? Would you suggest that they train in Node or that they kind of train other ways? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good question as well. Honestly, I'd let them choose whatever they're more comfortable with. Now, if they are already an expert in machine learning, there's a good chance they came from Python land. And in that case, we actually have the ability to run Python saved models. And that's just a certain format that you can export. Once you make a model, you can dump that model to a file and it's called the saved model format. And essentially, you can run that saved model format in Node.js without conversion, which is pretty cool. So you, you can just then integrate with your web team very easily to then get the reach and scale of the web if you so desire. Now, the second path is to convert that saved model format into JSON format, essentially, which is digestible by the front end. So as you just kind of guessed there, JavaScript runs everywhere. And depending where you're running it, you need to have it in the right format for client side versus everything else. That's the main two differences, client side and everything else. So if you want to 
on the client side, we've got a command line tool that you can run on a saved model to convert it to the JSON format so that it can be run in the web browser. And not to get too techy here, but Essentially, the only caveat with that is command line conversion, which is only applicable to go from Python to JavaScript on the client side. We only support about 200 or so of the TensorFlow operations. And maybe let's say there's a thousand of them in, in to start with. So if you're going to do that, you have to make sure that the model you've created is only using the 200 operations that we actually support on the client side. Now, these are you know, popular ones. So hopefully most of the time it does convert. But if it doesn't for some reason, then they'd have to look into rejiggling their model model on, on the Python side to not use certain operations. And of course, TensorFlowJet is completely open source. If they wanted to, they're welcome to contribute <laughs> to those missing ops. Uh, we're only a few people on the team, so um, it's always great to have extra hands contributing as well. And then, of course, if they want to go full out and, and write in Node.js from the beginning, that's completely fine too. And there are some advantages to using Node.js over Python in this use case. So when you have a machine learning model, typically, in order to use that model, you've got to change the input input data into a form the model can digest because machine learning can only work with numbers essentially. So when you've got data coming from a webcam, a microphone or some table in Excel or whatever it is that is your source, you need to convert that. You've got to do some pre-processing in order to get that into a format that that model can take in as its input. Now, if you do that in Node.js land, you can actually see a significant speed boost for that pre and sometimes post-processing afterwards as well. And we've seen with people like Hugging Face, who are quite famous for natural language processing out in the real world, they saw a two times performance boost just by switching to Node.js for their pre and post-processing and then digesting wow. the saved model in Node, which is great for doing pretty much nothing other than writing in JavaScript. So completely, if you are a Python expert and you don't know any JavaScript, then it might be fine just to stick to Python. But if you are willing to delve into Node.js, then you might see some performance benefits from that too, which is great. And if you're an existing JS developer, then of course, just start with Node or, or Vanilla JS on the front end. <laughs> That's awesome. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. And, you know, uh, well, I tell you, Python's been around for a while. So they have a large set of libraries like image augmentation and adjustments yeah. to, to get there. Do you think that on the Node front or training in Node, we're going to see the same kind of libraries? I guess, I guess my question is parity overall. Where do you see, are we going to see Python node parity? And then also those 200 versus 1,000 functions for client sure. on the JS side. Are is there planned parity there? And, and what are the priorities? Where are we going to see people try to match first? So honestly, my gut instinct is that JavaScript is actually more powerful for graphics right now, because from day one, it's been designed for the presentation of information on the internet to share research papers or whatever it was. So JavaScript, HTML, CSS, this stack, is amazing at creating charts, at doing 3D graphics and WebGL and all this kind of fun stuff. So I think our charting and graphics libraries are already more mature. Now, the advantage that Python might have right now, which I think will change over time, is that it might have more 
advanced scientific and mathematical libraries because a lot of researchers traditionally have used Python. But as machine learning starts to move to JavaScript and you know, 67% of people use JavaScript, according to Stack Overflow of 2019, then we're going to start to see a lot of those kinds of things ported over to JavaScript land as well. And then at that point, you've got parity or better, in my personal opinion. And I, I personally love JavaScript for prototyping things because it's just so easy to reuse code across the whole stack, front end, back end, internet of things, native mobile, native desktop. It literally runs everywhere. And there's very few languages that can do that without extra plugins and additional effort. So for me, that's the superpower that I love the most and why I'm a big fan, a big JS fanboy. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So what's the portability to other tools? We've kind of talked about portability between Python and JavaScript, but what about portability to some of the other machine learning tools out there? Can you take your model from one and stick it in the other? So. Our team doesn't support conversion to other machine learning formats. However, if you are writing in TensorFlow format, so the same model format that I spoke about earlier, you can convert that to some intermediate format that then can be digested by other libraries and so on and so forth. So there is kind of like a, a hacky way to go about it, but there's no like official approach as such. But there are like formats which convert to other formats and so on and so forth <laughs> until you get to the thing you want. But it's a little bit hacky. <laughs> so that's something to bear in mind. Yeah. In the past, I've used Onyx to try yes, to get right. there. And <laughs> I've always been the first person to file an issue sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm really looking forward to Onyx being like fully supported setup. I'll say this, TensorFlow needed TensorFlow.js. If you take a look at the model zoos, model zoos are just like awesome repos. But for some reason, like the name of art in machine learning is called a model zoo, which is a funny thing. <laughs> the model zoos for other frameworks have been very attractive, very fun, mm -hmm. interesting exciting. You can almost feel the the PyTorch like let me let me play with this kind of draw to it. And then, then uh, when you look at TensorFlow's models, they feel very industrial, you know, yeah, like very valuable and, but yeah, industrial. Yeah, 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 yeah. But TensorFlow.js is sort of the antidote to that because yeah, like you said, yeah middle essentially right so <laughs> i am yeah, super happy to see that I, I actually i would love to see more examples in the tensorflow i guess tensorflow doesn't really go with the whole zoo terminology <laughs> Sure, they have like sure. the models and stuff. But do you kind of see that that is is TensorFlow JS going to be the the beacon to TensorFlow for a lot of people out there? I guess sure. it's yeah. for you know because the truth is the demos have been quite exciting. Do you know is, is there a new yeah. model or demo? Like is something new coming out that you can kind of tease or maybe you're not allowed to right. say it. Um, <laughs> But so uh, I'd love to know. You, you raise a really interesting point that I just want to touch on as well quickly. Like, um, I'm super excited that I think TensorFlow.js has awoken the creative community, people who are not academics and researchers, especially. And we're starting to see, like, just for example, there's one guy in Tokyo, Japan. He's actually a dancer and he's used TensorFlow.js to make a hip hop video with this cool kind of semi-invisible effect where he's like dancing around and it's, it's tracking him in real time and it's got this cool kind of effect going on. And it just shows that machine learning can now be used by anyone. And I'm super excited to see how creatives, musicians, artists, all these kind of folk are going to embrace it and use it in ways that researchers and traditional engineers will have never have jumped up. And I think that will be the bandwagon that gets all this started and could make JS, you know, a big player in the ML 
space. Right now, it's more of a few people experimenting, but as more JS developers take their first steps and realize they can com combine it with their traditional creative mind that I know that they have, <laughs> we're going to see it being used for many interesting things. And I'm super excited to see where that goes, actually. So one thing that I'm wondering about with this, because we've talked about a lot of the kind of the fun things you can explore, some of the areas where you can dive in and see what the possibilities are and things like that. My question is, if I wanted to go to my boss, right, and say, boss, I want to do some machine learning. I think it would benefit the company. I mean, what's the sales pitch there? What kinds of things can I tell them that we are, we are going to get out of it? Because, sure. you know, I, I hear people saying we're using machine learning and they kind of buzzword it out, but nobody actually explains how it's beneficial to those companies beyond yeah. just kind of having people go, oh, yeah, that's cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh and, and on that note, not every solution should be done using machine learning as well. But sometimes oh. where you want to use plain old computer science, you know, and machine learning is not the, the answer for everything. I, <laughs> yeah, know, I, so I don't want everybody to know that I, that I disagree with Jason here. I, <laughs> I, I coded a uh, FizzBuzz model because what you need to do is you need... <laughs> FizzBuzz <laughs> is way too hard to write an actual just computer science code. You need... A ridiculous machine learning AI model to solve it. Yeah, Modulo is way, way too advanced for me. <laughs> I'd love to be uh, in one of your interviews, Gantz. Like, uh, they ask you this problem, and like maybe you get the answer wrong the first time, but you just keep on going until you get it right. And then... <laughs> You've proven yourself totally as a data that. scientist. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you take this number and you move it into the other register and then uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> say now but <laughs> yes what was the question again <laughs> the convince your boss i think oh oh that's right yes yes so yeah first of all look for something that maybe is a pain point in your current workflows so it, let's just take a very simple use case which could affect many industries it's not industry specific but you know you've got a a, a contact form on your website right and that form can go to the sales team it can go to the engineering team it can go to all these different teams within your organization depending on the query that's written in that big chunk of text. Now, in the old days, you would be essentially reading that, someone would read that and then decide who to forward it to to then deal with it. And that's a waste of human time, but that person can be doing mm -hmm. much more productive things. Using natural language processing, once you've got a few thousand examples of this, you can actually then figure out if a chunk of text is probably related to a salesperson or probably related to a technical question and so on and so forth. And you can automatically have it root to the team you think is probably the one. Now, if it gets it wrong, that's not the end of the world because the team will just then reroute it just like anyone would have done in the first place. But 90% of the time, it will go to the right team off the bat. And this is a great example of how you can optimize and be more efficient. And if you can do that, you're saving money. And as a business, that's a good thing. Especially if you're a startup, you need to save every penny and use that in the best way that you can. And I think every industry has the chance to be influenced by machine learning in some capacity. And over the next decade, we're going to start to see that happen and the companies that do embrace it and manage to automate things that otherwise would have needed a human will see the efficiencies and obviously have an advantage over their competitors. So that's where I see it standing right now and uh, how to choose a problem. <laughs> I think I think what you just said outlines sort of the value proposition for machine learning in a company. But the issue is, is, okay, well, how long is it going to take to pay off and how much work are we going to yeah. have to put in, right? Exactly. I mean, one thing that I found in my business is, you know, I trained somebody else who 
I value their time at less than mine, meaning I'm paying them less than I need to be right. paid in order to make it worth worth it, right? And eventually, yeah. after I train them and they do it five, six, seven, eight, ten times, right? I'm yeah. starting to make that money back because I'm doing more profitable activities for my business. So sure. the the issue here, though, is that to train this system, you actually have to spend engineering time and you have to validate the results because, you know, it, it's a different animal from training a, a human. Not that I'm saying humans are good, but anyway. So, but, but you get the idea, right? So, yeah, how much work is it going to be and how, is it, how long is it going to take yeah. to pay off is another question that I think yeah. managers are going to ask. So there's no, like, general answer here. Some, some problems are well solved in the realm of machine learning, like object detection using the webcam or right. even some of this stuff, like I mentioned, like the natural language processing to determine if a piece of text belongs to some corpus or a different corpus. That is actually fairly easy to... There's plenty of examples out there that within, I know, an hour, even if you're fairly new, you can take some existing stuff and just re- purpose it to work on your data set. The key thing is the data, actually. The hardest thing you will have is finding enough data that is useful for the use case that you're trying to do. That's actually the bigger problem that most people have. The machine learning side is actually, there's a lot of stuff out there you can use in a very easy manner these days. That the, the problem is getting the data for your specific niche use case. <laughs> so if mm-hmm. I'm a farmer trying to recognize apples and oranges, then I need data on apples and oranges with their maybe weights and colors to be able to identify them later on. And maybe that data set doesn't exist yet. So I've got to go and gather that data myself. So the biggest problem I see when people are trying to do this is that they haven't been recording that data in the first place. It's not been recorded for some reason. So mm-hmm. then they've got to spend some time recording it so that they have stuff to use in that machine learning training, essentially. <laughs> well, I wanted to, I wanted to throw in there as well. There's this ominous, ever rolling forward sort of explanation of saying like, oh, you know, I, I can do this. How long would it take for me to do this on a computer? I could do it on paper, you know, yeah. and then now everything's on computers and anybody who's doing anything on paper. So I'll say that there's always this uh, extra motivation I want to toss in there. I think that pretty much soon enough, you don't want to wait. You don't want to be the last adopter of AI. Right, the same way you didn't want to be the last person to go to web or the last person to go to mobile. So yep. you always have to factor in whether or not the time's worth it. There's a growth factor because <laughs> <laughs> I've I've never seen something accelerate like this. So sure, yeah. the, as a, as my little tidbit, I'll toss on top of there. Of course, we all don't want to do something that takes a ridiculous amount of time, but yeah. also you don't want to be the holdout. Yeah, yeah. and you obviously, don't, you don't if you're a business, that is, oh, sorry, if you're a business that is maybe not so techy, maybe you don't have any engineers right now, then Yes, that is a big investment to start jumping on the ML bandwagon. But if you are a business that's already got some web devs, like you know, JS devs or something, then starting to use machine learning is not as big of a change to using a different API or something like this. So mm-hmm. in that respect, it might not be as, as scary as one, might see, as one might think at the beginning, essentially. And it might be an easier transition as long as the data is there. <laughs> but yeah, of course, people should definitely record like before and after. Uh, the efficiencies and the costs and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, as long as it's going up and to the right on the graph in terms of, well, I guess down, actually, wouldn't the cost to go down <laughs> wrong way around. But um, <laughs> as long as those things are going down and, and the customer satisfaction is going up, then ML could be a good thing to use. But if you find it's not, then, of course, continue using your existing process that's actually working out better or use other techniques. Makes sense. One other thing that, that kind of feels a little bit daunting to me and you brought it up was the real trick is getting enough of the right enough data in there to actually train it properly. Right. And we've yeah. seen issues with this where they were categorizing photographs and they didn't put enough of the right data in there. And right. so it categorized people with certain facial features as yeah. certain kinds of animals 
or where it categorized like there was a picture of Auschwitz and it categorized it as a playground, mm, you know, right. and, and it's just like yeah. it's it's yeah. like so far beyond, you know, to our sensibilities, it's not even funny that it's wrong, yeah. you know. So mm-hmm. so how do you make sure that your data sets are uh, sufficient to not make those kinds of mistakes. Because, I mean, if it categorizes me as a woman, I'm probably going to laugh. But if it categorizes, you know, mm-hmm. some of these other things, yeah. some, you know, those other examples, you know, it's like, it's like, that's kind of offensive, but it's just the algorithm, yeah. right? It's not intentional. So, yeah. And, and you don't want to go through that. Yeah, totally. And this definitely comes down to having good training data that's unbiased. If you Let's say you're making a speech recognition system, okay, and you are based in America and you're you're learning you know, to recognize English. Now you've sampled it on all your friends and family and everyone in your state and even maybe other states, and then along comes a British guy like me and I break your system because you had no British folk talking in English. And that accent that mm-hmm. I have is just not recognized. And you know, this this was definitely a problem with speech recognition earlier in the days, and now they're much more robust. They've got samples of people talking in like British English, Canadian English, maybe English with accents if you're like Indian or something. So there's now much more robust training data that can account for these differences, but you do need to find that. And these biases are not always conscious either. Like people were not trying to exclude like British speaking folk when they made speech recognition, right? It just like it just didn't cross their minds that to the MR model it would have difficulty in that kind of transferability to pick up the nuances in, in how things are pronounced. But it does it does actually matter and you have to be very careful there. And the best way to do your due diligence is to get a wide variety of people to test it with in a private testing environment before you go live from different parts of the world, different regions, different backgrounds, all this kind of stuff, just to kind of make sure that you've done your best <laughs> due diligence mm-hmm. that it does work in all these situations. And this is a really hard problem because we're just talking about humans here but what about operating systems and other things, other environmental changes that are not like to do with humans as well? All of these things could affect the quality of the ML model. And a good example of that is a model that was trained on digital SLR, high definition footage from a pro recording studio mm. versus me trying to use it on my webcam once it's released. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. the rainy webcam data is completely different bunch of numbers as far as the computer's concerned versus mm-hmm. uh, the, the production quality, beautiful, um, high, high definition pixels. So you need to make sure you have data from all those different areas if you're going to have a really, truly robust model. Yeah. So it's not, it's very hard to do right. But, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll jump in and just say that certain people have to bear that cross harder than others. So, so for instance, we were talking a moment ago about is my garage door open or is my garage door closed? In right. that sense, yeah. what, what I just want to kind of like say is like, it's, it's a new way of thinking. You know, I'll say when people built apps, they didn't think about the effects that these apps had. But then, you know, we have web and mobile, we have to think about accessibility, we have to think about, yeah. you know, QA knows to ask these questions. This is all yeah. new. And it's kind of going through that you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because if you if you have something that is, it's trying to see whether your garage door is open or closed, then it can suffer from that problem you you mentioned earlier, Jason. That yeah. it's a blue deck of playing cards. It's a red deck yeah. of playing cards. It's okay because this is this isn't identifying whether or not a person has cancer. <laughs> the stakes are different. Context is yeah. definitely a big thing yeah. here. Like if you're, and I only you care power, about one garage door. <laughs> <laughs> if you right. only care about that one garage door and not, you're not going to deploy this to the rest of the world, then sure, yeah. for your prototype, you might not need to have every garage door 
<laughs> in the world right. in that in that training data, right? Yeah, and that could be yeah. good enough for certain projects. But if it has the potential to affect the life or or be mm -hmm. offensive yes. or something like this, then yeah. extra diligence is definitely required. But it depends on the situation. Yeah. And just yeah. one thing related to that is it, with machine learning, explainability is sometimes an issue as to why people don't use machine learning. So if I use regular computer science to let's say recognize Gantt space on this video call, you know, I could use okay, he's got he's got there's two circles there. There's like a a rectangle, which is his glasses, and some kind of grey rectangle at the bottom for his nice goatee and beard, and <laughs> and basically you can put together a robust computer vision model using plain old computer science that yeah. can explain exactly how it works. He's looking for two circles, some rectangles, and blah blah blah, blah um, certain colours, and so on. Now, if I train a machine learning model to recognise Gantt, it might actually perform better and be more robust, but I cannot tell you exactly mm -hmm. how it came to that conclusion, at least with current technology that's harder to do you have always this bunch of mathematics that magically works out with the right answer <laughs> and as you dive deeper into machine learning you can see why that works but explaining it truly mm -hmm. to another human is very very tricky and yeah. that's why we see some some industries even like medical very slow to adopt some of the machine learning practices because they want to be sure that it's not just a fluke and it's got enough mm -hmm. unbiased training data that will work on all patients and not just the data set they use and so on and so forth. So in those cases, yeah. one must be much more diligent. Yeah, well well said. And I think that, you know, each, each of these problems for a company sort of pitching it, there's different rooms for error. You know, when we say medical, we're talking mission critical. Code yeah. is different. You know, uh, mission critical code is still written like in COBOL. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like these airplanes are written in these these sort of functionally strict programming languages, and JavaScript, you know, is dynamic. Yeah. So the truth is, be an adult and be be friendly with that kind of with that data. In my, I'm I'm sort of augmenting what you're saying here is that you know it's important, but you have to identify what the project is and and who you whose lives you're going to affect, and that's software. That's not just machine yeah. learning. That's not, yeah. that's, not, that's not something to make it say the machine messed up. As a matter of fact, companies who are saying that and MIT <laughs> trying to yeah. say that is like, no, no, that's not it. It's no longer an acceptable answer. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, and this is something I'm just going to put out there for our audience, is that a lot of these conversations are happening out there already. Yeah. Some of these mistakes have already been made. I mean, you know, I brought up two examples that were, you know, offensive, yeah. right? Because, yeah, I mean, if I hadn't been aware of that stuff and I was putting together a model on re recognizing people speaking, yeah, I'd have gone around and recorded all my buddies and come back here and mm -hmm. we would have the Midwestern Utah accent and, you know, that'd be <laughs> it, right? But because I've paid attention and been part of the conversations and yep. listened to what people have run into. And so go out there and just see what, people are concerned with see where these things have had these mistakes made where the models weren't robust enough and then you can go in and say okay what data do i need to add to this in order to avoid these issues yeah and uh, one one more piece i just kind of want to say here jason part of the reason i really love what you're doing with tensorflow js is because it goes out to the edge and it goes out to people it's probably one of the best willing data capturing systems out there. If your goal was to make the most robust garage door system, how hard is it to just go ahead and pull up a web page on your phone and yeah. like help feed that kind of data? I mean, right. normally exactly. data science is a lot harder than webs. And and I think that's really cool because what, what we're seeing here with TensorFlow.js going to JavaScript like it is, that's where a lot of UI is. And 